You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we'll be hearing all about sugar. Governments should, in terms of making decisions, uh, bear in mind that one should be uh, doing everything possible to uh, encourage the reduction of sugar and sugary beverages. But first... The BMA's come out with a new report, Drugs of Dependence, the Role of the Medical Professionals. And to talk about that, I'm joined by Vivian Nathanson, who's Director of Professional Activities at the BMA. Thanks for joining us, Vivian. Pleasure. Now, um, you've been everywhere talking about this, so I'm sure lots of our listeners have already heard some of this. But could you give us just a, a top line from the report? I think the top line is that we think that we should be looking at drugs policy on the basis that drug addicts are patients first and foremost um, rather than criminals and that once you actually start to look at this as a health issue, it actually changes the way in which you set up your policy, the way which you implement policy and it also allows us to have a much better dialogue both with patients and equally importantly with their friends and family so that we can get people treated earlier, avoid some of the health costs, but also avoid some of the social costs that we all bear. Mm. And um, how do you think doctors should sort of really feed into that? First and foremost, we want doctors to come forward to us with stories. The narratives of what has worked for them in treating patients and equally what hasn't worked. Mm. That then helps us to say to ministers, these are the things that would really make a difference. You know, the just say no hasn't worked. We still have a rising number of deaths from drugs. So we have to have something that, that breaks that cycle, that starts to really make a difference. Or we're going to continue to see us spending, as a society, I think it's $1.2 billion mm, yes, a year, yes. which is a huge amount of money on this. It is. So is the BMA collating that kind of information? One of the things we're doing with the report is asking people to send us information and we will be collating it and trying to pull out of that because this is this is the first bit of an ongoing policy to try to, to drive that change into looking at this as a health issue. So obviously data gathering is an important part of that and we'll be trying to pull out of all these stories that we get some, some truths, mm-hmm. um, some facts, some, some evidence if you like that we can use when we talk to ministers but also send back to our members so that they can use it in negotiations with their local service providers. Absolutely. Um, Responsibility for the funding of public health initiatives to to perhaps treat or or prevent drug use are moving into local authorities um, away from, from the government. So do you have any worries about how that's going to change the availability of services? I think everybody involved in public health worries about what the future of public health will be (laughs) uh, in this brave new world. But it could be a good thing. I mean, could is an important word. Mm. But, But the fact is that it may be possible to actually run local campaigns, local projects, local programs that deal with local problems. And, and frankly, you know, drug use varies. It varies very widely depending on when you, where you are, what the drugs are that are used, the groups of people who use them, where they use and how they use. And that does mean there is the possibility of having local programmes which concentrate on what the local problem is. What we would also want to see, of course, is an investment, and, and it may be that we have to go to central government for this, that actually 
um, captures those examples, says what's worked, mm. what's making a difference and what hasn't worked. Because again, there's that need to keep testing. I mean, the fact that we have many local systems, as long as, as the issue isn't lost, could mean that we are trying different things, almost as a series of different parallel pilots, yeah. which would be useful. But the danger is, of course, that it could disappear completely. And again, that's another reason for this being a very timely report, mm -hmm. because we're reminding people that this is a subject that mustn't be lost um, as we reshuffle everything. Now, a point that's been picked up widely in, in the coverage of this is um, that you say criminalisation exacerbates the medical problems of drug taking. So it's quite hard to I mean, talk about the medical treatment uh, intervention without looking at a sort of wider criminalisation debate. Um, things seem to be changing uh, slightly in that. So um, do you hope that that, that conversation evolves and that uh, your members can really feed into that. We really do hope that doctors will feed into this debate uh, and particularly point out that, that spending the whole of the time in debating drugs talking about the criminal aspects misses out on the fact that at the heart of it there are people with a problem and that drug addiction and addiction in particular, not the occasional use, but particularly the addiction, is a medical problem. And it's the same as addiction to tobacco and addiction to alcohol. Uh, the only difference is that the addiction is to a substance that's illegal mm. when those, were, those are, are legal drugs. And that we need to concentrate on that and to how to help those people off drugs. Of course, if we had nobody using drugs, then the criminal aspects would disappear because there would be nobody selling drugs if nobody wanted to buy or to use. Mm. Um, and that's actually really quite an important message, that there are a variety of ways in dealing with this. But concentrating on the criminal aspects, we believe, makes it difficult for patients to come forward and say to their doctor, I use drugs, I've always used them occasionally, I think I've now got a problem with them. Or for their families to come forward because they're frightened. They don't know whether this will inevitably lead them into the police and the criminal justice system or, or just to treatment, which is what they want. And that's why, again, retooling the debate that it's about medicine uh, helps. It also means that it's be we're better at gathering data very often, and particularly data that's based upon individuals' mm. experience, because that's what really makes a difference. What's interesting, however, is that the criminal debate goes on in every country, and we know that at least one country is currently decriminalising drugs, and that's really useful for everyone else, because that becomes a pilot yeah, for all the rest of us. I mean, we've seen some good sort of medical intervention there uh, in terms of um, harm reduction, especially when it came to, to heroin use. Um, tackling things like HIV in, in those populations and the problems, particularly in Eastern Europe now, where those harm reduction measures haven't been put in. Um, so this, there is good data to say that you know, medicalisation of drugs helps. Um, but yet that message doesn't always get through. So, I mean, how can the, the, how can the profession Know, really sort of push that home. We know that where we've got doctors involved in campaigning before, so for example, the anti-tobacco campaign, mm. um, the famously we wanted a thousand doctors to sign a petition to promote the idea of a smoke-free workplaces. We put out a call to doctors overnight to send in stories of patients harmed by other people's smoke. We got two and a half thousand cases overnight. Mm. 
far more than we thought were possible. We wanted a thousand cases in three weeks, and we got two and a half thousand overnight. <laughs> that made a difference. We got the law in the UK, so we need to look at this. Doctors have enormous power when they use these personal stories of things that they've seen, things that they've experienced, patients that they've been able to help, and even more importantly, sometimes patients they've not been able to help because something else, in this case potentially. The, the, the criminal justice dialogue has got in the way and that helps us to make a difference. Nobody's going to be against this in the sense that we're all about reducing the numbers of people who suffer harm and in the long term that actually means stopping people from using drugs that are going to harm them. So really it's a sort of setting up a, a very pragmatic grassroots movement to, to really look at good evidence and best practice in this arena. Absolutely. The best evidence will come from individual doctors. There's useful evidence coming from treatment clinics, but the best evidence, particularly the evidence around the time of, of when people present and what stops them from presenting and what encourages them to present for help, will come from the individual doctor meeting the individual patient. And that starts a grassroots thing. You know, we can change the world if we all push at the same time. Yeah. Vivian, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. And the report, which is also full of practical information about drugs and drug use, is available for free on the BMA's website. And you can also find out about contributing those case studies. Links from the podcast page. Now, earlier this week, the BMJ turned its attention to sugar. We've published various articles looking at the role it plays in obesity and those lifestyle diseases associated with overconsumption. Part of that is a meta-analysis of sugar intake and body weight, and earlier this week I spoke to the authors about their study and its implications. I'm joined on the line by Lisa Timurenga, a research fellow, and Jim Mann, a professor, both at the Department of Human Nutrition and Medicine at the University of Otago in New Zealand. Now Jim, if we start with you... um, Could you put this in context for us? The WHO's released some guidelines about sugar consumption already, and this research is sort of feeding into their update. So what was the lay of the land uh, at the moment? The the World Health Organization in 2003 uh, developed a set of guidelines which were really uh, the guidelines for public health nutrition worldwide. And they included a recommendation to reduce the intake of sugars to no more than 10% of total calories. Now, this was a rather arbitrary recommendation uh, based at our best attempts at understanding the literature at the time. But there has been a lot of criticism of this recommendation on the grounds that the evidence is not actually good enough uh, to come up with something like this. And the standard way of answering a question like this is by doing a systematic review of the literature and meta-analysis of all existing knowledge. Uh, so that's really where, where this work started. So Lisa, if we turn to you to talk about the study itself, um, how good was the data that you were able to feed into your systematic review? And was it comprehensive? Was there much that you would like to have added in there that was missing? It would have been nicer to have more studies, for one thing, because definitely more would have improved the quality of the data and more studies that were more longer-term studies. So we had at least half of our studies were less than 10 weeks, and it would have been nice to have studies in excess of six months. 
Um, so that was one factor. But to control for other factors, we looked at studies where the only differences, the only intended differences between um, the high sugars and the low sugars interventions group was the recommendations around sugars intake or the provision of matched food items that um, that were matched to look or taste the same but differed in the amount of sugars in them. Um, so we excluded studies where there were um, differences in exercise levels between the two groups or where um, there were multiple dietary changes made. So we didn't, if say there was a study looking at a low a low sugar diet compared to a diet that was high in sugar and low in fat specifically. So people were given in that group recommendations to reduce both sugar and reduce fat as well. Then we excluded that study because you couldn't then say that the effect on weight was due simply to just a difference in sugars. And when it came to the, the data collection within the studies themselves, how well was it done? Um, was it particularly comprehensive? Well, that's never going to be easy with human, free-living human studies. Um, so unless you lock people in a room and measure everything they eat and control everything they eat, you're never going to be entirely sure about what they do eat. But then if you did that, how relevant would the findings of that study be at a population or even an individual level because we don't live locked up in boxes. So I think it's it's still an interesting to qu a question to say um, what is the difference in effect when one group's given advice to reduce sugar and one group's not given that advice to reduce sugar or when one group's given food products to help them reduce sugar and the other group's just given regular food products. Um, what we're really measuring is the effectiveness of that advice, I guess. Thanks, Lisa. Now, Jim, if we turn back to you now, um, what do you think this research highlights and how does it, and what does it mean for those WHO recommendations? The respective increase and decrease in weight which occurred with the ad libitum increase and decrease of the sugars intake was virtually identical. So I think that consistency is really uh, very encouraging in terms of being confident that the results are correct. I think the second uh, point about the data which are really very important, and I think Lisa alluded to this, is that there weren't as many long-term studies as we would have wished, but in fact, where, they, where it was possible to separate out the longer-term studies from the shorter-term studies, it was clear that uh, the weight gain associated with increasing sugars became very much more marked the longer the studies were continued. As Lisa has said, it would be wonderful to have some more longer-term studies, but that clue is even there from the studies uh, which exist uh, and which were included uh, in Lisa's meta-analysis. The third thing which I think is really very important to emphasize is that when people exchanged sugar for whatever other carbohydrates they chose to use, there was really no difference in weight. So what it suggests, at least as far as weight is concerned, and it may be different as far as other health issues are concerned, it looked as if there wasn't anything magical about sugar 
from a weight control point of view, other than when people, uh, if we look at what happened when people gave up sugar, when they gave up sugar, even if they were offered the opportunity to replace that sugar with other uh, foods, non-sugary foods, it seems they couldn't do it. So maybe it's because sugar is such a concentrated source of energy that um, people in the ad libitum context just didn't replace. So I think this has very important practical uh, conclusions. Um, another aspect which I think is interesting is again the suggestion with regard to sugary drinks that when we or children drink a large number of sugary drinks, maybe the appetite sensing in the brain does not actually pick up that we are having a vast number of calories from, uh, from sugary drinks. So I think the implications are, uh, I mean, looking at it from a WHO perspective point of view, again, remembering that I'm not, um, I'm not in a position to comment on behalf of WHO, the importance of this is really very much from a public health point of view because what it really means is that governments should, in terms of making decisions, uh, bear in mind that one should be uh, doing everything possible to uh, encourage the reduction of sugar and sugary beverages. So, for example, in countries where um, sugary beverages are sold in dispensing units in schools, but this is not a good thing to do. There are other very important issues like advertising high-sugar foods um, to small children. It has substantial implications for the food industry who should be trying to work out how to reduce the sugar intake of their high-energy, dense foods. Jim Mann, Lisa Timoringa, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. And the Cluster of Sugar articles is available online on bmj.com and in the current print edition. That's all for this week. Next week we'll be back looking at early psychosis, what can be done for patients, and how's the health of the US faring when compared to the rest of the world. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.